This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. I'm Michael Horn, and welcome to Future You, joined by my co-host, Jeff Salingo, and we're really excited for our guest today. We have Adam Harris, uh, an education journalist at The Atlantic, who's been a journalist not just in higher education, but covering a range of topics over the years. And uh, from my perspective as a writer, I'm very jealous of your writing because I I pick up your stories and I read them and they just flow beautifully and write through it. So if you haven't read his writing, please do, because it's it's, uh, not only informative, but I think it's beautiful writing. So thrilled that you would join us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. So we love to start off with our guests with a general question of just how did you get into this crazy world of covering higher education to begin with? (laughs) Well, it was kind of a roundabout path, um, but my path to journalism was also pretty roundabout. I went to Alabama A&M and then went out to Texas Tech where I met my wife. Um, I'd started a, a graduate program in philosophy and um, went on down to Austin with her, never, didn't finish that program and um, worked a bunch of different jobs, kind of learning about a couple of different things and um, decided I didn't want to do that whole range of things and wanted to do journalism specifically. Um, so that was coaching basketball and digital marketing and uh, substitute teaching and um, <laughs> freelance writing all at the same time. Um, so I went up to ProPublica and uh, became the social editor. And while I was there, I worked on a lot of um, projects with Annie Waldman, um, who is just a fantastic higher education reporter. And um, kind of doing some of that kind of made me think about education reporting and inequality in a different way. Hmm. Um, so as as I was wanting to transition into more reporting, um, I started freelancing again for a little bit and then uh, applied for the job at The Chronicle um, with, with kind of an eye towards covering historically black colleges. It was something that I knew. All, um, all of my family members have gone to HBCUs. Um, and I, I felt that there was kind of a gulf in coverage there. There, there wasn't as much coverage totally. on HBCUs. Um, so I get there and I start covering HBCUs and um, that ultimately turns into covering the administration um, because, you know, early on in the Trump administration, they, they made this big play. They of said it was going to be a big part of their focus. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. And the famous photo in the Oval Office. Exactly. With the HBCU Kelly and Conway with their feet up on the couch. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, uh, so that that ultimately turns into covering federal higher education policy as well, um, and and you know I guess from there it's it's kind of all history. <laughs> and so now you're at the uh, Atlantic, uh, Adam, and and you know the Atlantic has always covered obviously given its history uh, higher education, but you know every once in a while they'd have these big you know, cover stories in the magazine and, and once in a while a piece on online. But now uh, it seems the Atlantic uh, has really in the last couple of years focused much more on on education in general, family uh, issues and, and kind of the intersection between those and, and higher education. So what is, um, as you think about your coverage in the Atlantic, what, what, are, what are your kind of beats, your specialties? What makes an Atlantic higher education story in your opinion? So... I think with the Atlantic generally, our, our our whole thing is kind of covering and thinking about the American idea and thinking about how, as an education reporter there, thinking about how education fits into that American idea and the attainability of of education in that American idea. So covering higher education has a lot to do with inequality. It has a lot to do with cost. It has a lot to do with sort of some of these these things that are ingrained in the system that, that we maybe take for granted. Um, so I think one of the, I, I've said it was one of the most Atlantic-y stories that I ever wrote was about um, George Washington's idea of, of a national university, um, where, where you're thinking about how were the founders thinking about this idea? How did it progress through? What were the hiccups that it had along the way? What was the first Morrill Act like? What was the second Morrill Act? like and how did that create the system that we have today um 
So I think we, you know, we have this large project going on um, where we're covering college affordability. We've covered free college. We've covered what generally made college so expensive. Um, we've been to Berea. That's going to continue on. Um, and, and kind of in this whole spectrum of K-12 through higher ed, so I guess K-16, through um, what inequality looks like in higher education and how that may be um, remedied. Well, I was going to say there's a twist off of that, which is that um, recently you were covering the uh, affirmative action case about Harvard's admissions policies and where the uh, Students for Fair Admissions have alleged that Harvard is discriminating against Asian Americans. You got to be up in that courtroom uh, covering that and writing a number of stories about that. I'd love for, for our listeners out there, can you give us a sense of what the mood of that trial was and how you see the big uh, central issues at, at stake that came out in the course of the trial? Yeah, so I guess... This this kind of all has to start in the, in the run up to the trial, um, where where there were there were protests in the days before. Um, well, I guess they would call them rallies, but there were protests in the days before that uh, were were where you kind of saw the the fissures in this this issue um, kind of exacerbated. So at the um, at the the pro um, I guess pro anti affirmative action, but the the students for fair admission rally. Um, there were actually two groups there, and a lot of this didn't really get reported, but there were basically two groups there. One that was like um, they they wanted to make it a little bit more political, saying thanks Trump for for making this uh, for for bringing this to the fore and all of this different stuff. And then there was a group that was like, no, we don't want this to be political. We want you. We just you know want um, people to recognize that Asian Americans are being discriminated against. Um, so as we move into the day of the trial and we, we get into the courtroom, um, all of that kind of um, that, that, that fierceness that it bubbled up, it kind of turned into like a general flow where it was mm. like, oh, this is like a regular trial. And, and the judge gets up and there's a lot of decorum. And um, the judge actually at the end of the trial praised all of the lawyers for like how um, respectful and, and you know, legalese they were being. But I think there was um, kind of some of the central issues that, that came out. Um, was you know Adam Ortara? One of the first things he he gets up and says is that um, the future of affirmative action is not really on trial here. Um, and then he kind of proceeds to make a, a litany of arguments that are essentially, you know, poking holes in the use of race in admissions, um, saying that if race is used as as a plus factor for um, you know for black or Latino students, then is it also a negative for for Asian American students or white students? Um, and they've also said that this was kind of um, this was doled out using this this personal score, which I imagine we'll get into a little bit later. But um, yeah, it, it seemed that it was it was a tense environment, um, but it also it seemed that Harvard was resting on the fact that there are four decades of Supreme Court precedent um, that it is wholly dependent, basically, on students for fair admissions to prove that that four decades of Supreme Court precedent is. I guess, discriminating against Asian American students. Yeah, one of the interesting things about this trial is that it put a lot of um, documents uh, out into the public sphere, of course, that Harvard did not want out there, uh, about how it conducted uh, admissions and how it conducts admissions. Uh, you know, and we started to see kind of a little bit behind the veil about what it does, uh, about the role, and, you know, even after covering this for all these decades, you know, what I was shocked about was the, the real role that legacy plays, um, uh, which is really, I think... Uh, exasperates uh, 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 inequality in, in much of elite higher education, the role athletics plays, even
even at a place like um, uh, at a Harvard, uh, the role that uh, you know donors play and everything else like that. As you think about that whole document trove that was in there, um, uh, what, what was, uh, you know, those I think generated the headlines, but there were a lot of other things in there. A- anything come to mind as, um, wow, the, uh, we never knew this about Harvard. I think how, how early, um, the, so one of, one of the most interesting things to me was, was how Harvard sent out recruiting materials. Um, so how they sent out like the PSAT, um, you know, after you get your PSAT score back, um, it was like, you know, Asian American students in, in sparse country, they called it, um, would, would get a mailer if they had like 1300, um, where, you know, white students in sparse country were getting it if they got an 1100 right. and sparse country, meaning those, uh, states that don't send a lot of kids to Harvard. Exactly. Right. Um, so, so I think, I thought that was probably one of the most interesting things and, and perhaps one of the most revealing things about where they're pulling their network from of students that isn't, isn't aren't, or that aren't legacy students or that aren't athletes and things of the sort. Um, but but I think one of the other things is just generally getting into Harvard's admissions practices and seeing just how we always knew that they're subjective and and but but seeing just how subjective all of this is um, and almost the you know it, it kind of reinforces the fact that as an elite college and as a highly selective college where there are sixteen hundred seats. Um, Nobody's going to be happy with any result, Um, you know, unless they're just saying, oh, we're going to admit everybody or we're going to admit like 30 percent or just up the amount of students that they enroll. Nobody's going to be happy because they could fill an entire Harvard class with people who have multiple times over. Exactly. With with perfect SATs and perfect GPAs. So um, just seeing how subjective all of this is, is kind of remarkable. And so where does this go from here, Adam? Now, so the judge has the case, uh, what, whether, no matter how this turns out, where does this, where do you think this case goes? Um, it seems that everyone believes this case is going to the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, when you look at that courtroom and you see all of the Supreme Court tested lawyers in there, I mean, Adam Mortara is one of the, he actually may be the first person um, in history who has argued two amici briefs before the court. Um, and he's the lawyer for students for fair admission. So there's, there's this kind of feel that because you have um, these high powered lawyers and because this case is so, um, it's, it is it is a case and they're making a, a unique legal argument that that seems prime for the court um, that that this is headed to the Supreme Court, not within the next year, not within maybe the next two years. But but at some point, this this probably heads to the court. So we'll have you back on at that point. But the other <laughs> the shift uh, uh, I'd love to make now is to maybe not a huge shift, but to politics and mm-hmm. higher education, because you've written a number of stories about that with the elections concluding a few weeks back. Uh, you, you, you've commented on sort of some uh, visions about higher education, and what it predicts in, in the American electorate, as well as how uh, the implications for higher education, given the election results. Uh, just your, your thoughts about that as you've, uh, you've observed these patterns across the country. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that we've seen since probably the 2016 election, even a little bit before that, is this growing divide um, among Republican voters, white Republican voters specifically, um, on uh, on party identification. So there's this partisan education gap. Um, and we really wanted to look into what was driving that gap and, and what that meant for higher education going forward. Because if you have the Democrats being the party of white voters with college degrees and the Republicans being the party of largely voters without college degrees, that creates a problem um, for higher education when one of the major parties, um, you know, is part perhaps a little bit skeptical of, of higher ed. Um, and you, you've seen what that looks like in, in states like Wisconsin, or you see what it looks like, um, even, even out, 
even in kind of the the Pros- Prosper Act, um, and this was this was a which point, is the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. Yeah, this this is a point that that um, Terry Hartle from from ACE was making um, that. This is a, a bill that was largely unpopular for higher education that um, a partisan party of Congress was able to push through committee. Um, so I think going forward, you could see more instances of of kind of partisan bills that higher education is not a fan of um, being pushed through by a party that, that is a little bit skeptical of the enterprise. Uh, Adam, recently, uh, Michael Bloomberg gave a, a large amount of money, um, <laughs> a large, amount uh, of money. <laughs> uh, well over a billion dollars to his alma mater, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University, uh, to make it uh, essentially for financial aid, uh, which he hadn't given to before. He, give, he gave to Johns Hopkins, but not on financial aid. They now say they'll be, have need blind uh, admissions in perpetuity, which also makes you think, even with all their money before, why they couldn't have done that. But anyway, that's probably a question for another matter. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, criticism on Twitter when that gift came out about, well, he could have just spread this money out to more institutions and had a bigger impact. Um, This is similar to other gifts to elite, uh, selective, very wealthy institutions in the past. And people think, well, will it just encourage more rich people to give to uh, the institutions that don't really need it? uh, Or will it encourage giving across the the way? What have we seen in the past uh, when these mega gifts have come out? Does it just encourage the rich to get richer? uh, Or does it actually encourage giving in in a broader way? And and what's going to happen now? I mean, do you think that Michael Bloomberg could actually have an impact Maybe not on giving large sums of money, but maybe giving money to where it's most needed, and it's not buildings and 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 diseases which he's given before, which we should say is probably needed. But but we know that a big piece of what's happening now in in higher ed is is both access and completion, and financial aid is critical to both of those things. Yeah, well, I think I, I go back to this this Walter Kimbrough essay in Inside Higher Ed in 2015, um, where he was talking about Harvard. Um, Harvard had just received a 400 million dollar donation. Um, and at the time, it was the largest donation, largest single donation to any university in the country. And it's it's almost like this is an embarrassment of riches, right? Um, it is a university that has received um, a, a large sum of money when they already have a large sum of money that they're sitting on um, that they could potentially be using for other things. Um, and yes, that did encourage, you know, a, a it sets a threshold that other rich people might be like, oh, yeah, maybe I up that. But as you've seen, it's been upped. But at Johns Hopkins <laughs> University, and not at, and not at um, you know, other other potential institutions that need more more help. So I, I saw a tweet from Ron Labor that was like, you know, why not give this to UMBC and or a little bit to U, UC Merced or something like that, where they have more low income and minority students, and and these are the students that are being most underserved by by elite higher education. Um, so I don't know that that this sets a pattern. Um, it's 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 it'll probably help a good amount of low income students and minority students at um, Johns Hopkins, but that's kind of a drop in, in the bucket. In well, that'll be of, a pretty small end because it'll exactly. probably be twenty people, maybe. If that's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So cynical. So cynical. No. <laughs> Adam, thanks a, a bunch for being on uh, Future You with us, uh, and we'll, we'll look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Most definitely. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll be back on Future You. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. 
Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. And we're back on Future You. Michael Horn here, joined by Jeff Salingo, uh, coming off a great conversation with Adam Harris. Say, we, we seem to be on a good streak of these conversations that could go on very long, uh, and we have to cut them off at about 15 minutes. But Adam has been covering a lot of interesting stories in the Atlantic, uh, none more so than the national uh, story that got a lot of attention in the pages of the Wall Street Journal and so forth of the uh, Harvard trial with the students for fair admissions. And Jeff, you're writing a book on admissions. So I'm curious from your perspective, how much is this story coming up in the stories that you're documenting at colleges and of students thinking about this admissions process and trying to get in college? And, and what do you think the impact of uh, all this is going to be? Well, it's definitely a uh, of, of concern to selective colleges like Harvard. Uh, at the same time, very few people, uh, even at the selective institutions, use the same process from institution to institution. But at the bottom line for those institutions that do uh, uh, use have very selective admissions, it's the ability to shape a class, right? Yep. And so every institution, most of those selective colleges use uh, holistic admissions, which means they read every application. They have various uh, ratings like uh, uh, on students like Harvard does. And their ability is to say, we want this student, but not that student. Uh, because as Adam said, you know, Harvard has the ability, given the selection that they have, the, the selection of students that they have, they could fill it with everybody who scored a perfect score on the ACT or the SAT and has a 4.0 plus GPA, right? And they could fill that over 10 times, right? But, but what these colleges want is a, a diversity of people um, from backgrounds, from the sports they played, from the activities they participated in, and from the backgrounds that they come from, whether it's race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, Geographic, they, right? They want a mix of students. And, and that ability, to me, what's on trial here is the ability of colleges and universities to say, this is what we value. And, and this is important. And I always tell students who talk about the admissions process as not being fair, I say it's not about you. It's, admissions has never been about students. It's always been about institutional priorities. Every institution has priorities for what it wants out of its classes, and that's how it designs its classes. And if the, if the court and the Supreme Court eventually takes that away just in terms of the narrow aspect of using race and admissions, you're really kind of taking away the use of any sort of subjective matter um, uh, in terms of admissions. And that's what admissions is. Admissions most of the time is subjective because those objective measures of scores and, and grades is there's, you know, at some of these institutions, hundreds, thousands of students have the same scores. So you have to have some subjective measure in terms of admissions. Yeah, we always joked at Harvard Business School, especially since I got to see a few different classes staying on there for a few extra years to write uh, some books with uh, Clay Christensen. <laughs> uh, I got to see subsequent classes. And we I, I always joked that you could always see that uh, the Harvard Business School admissions office basically had micro-targeted the exact 900 people, you know, down to the uh, individual that they wanted for each class. And I was the non-traditional, non-business background person who'd come in and you'd get the, you know, person with exactly this many years of McKinsey experience, et cetera, et cetera. And they could literally micro-target. But the other thing that occurred to me, uh, both listening to Adam, but also in terms of reading the coverage of, of the story, was how little this impacts from a numbers perspective, most of the people that go to higher education in the sense that 
most of the institutions of higher education in this country are not these uber selective yep. institutions. They're they're enrolling a sliver of the higher education population, and then if you add on to that all the people that don't go to college, uh, it's really it, it's it it doesn't feel as consequential in that regard as in some ways we're making it out to be. Uh, although, of course, in the admissions industry. It seems very intense. Is that is that a fair perception? It is. Well, first of all, yeah, the average acceptance rate of American colleges and universities, according according to the latest NACAC survey, which came out a couple of weeks ago, is sixty five percent. So sixty five percent is the average acceptance rate. Right, we're at Harvard. It's you know well under ten. I think it might have been six uh, percent last year. So yeah, so Harvard and 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 those most selective institutions are, are definitely outliers. They probably enroll less than 10% of, of students, but they probably get 90% of, of press coverage. And and largely that's because, I mean, there's a lot of criticism of press coverage of, of elite universities. I think many newsrooms are filled with people who went sure, to these went to uh, universities, they're readers. And I think most of it is that, you know, whenever those criticisms come up on social media, I always say they're just appealing to their readers, right? It's many of their readers went to those places and there's advertisers care about those readers and and so they're just appealing to their readers and their listeners and their watchers same right? reason so, the new york times publishes certain wedding announcements right. and not others i yeah. mean it is just you're you're playing to the to the audience and but i think the bigger issue here is is from a a point of uh is from a point of public policy uh which gets us into the other stuff that we talked about with adam and and that is around the election result right and so we're starting to see a, a big divide here in the electorate which has come across the last couple of elections and particularly going back to 2016 where, you know, non-college educated uh, um, people are going Republican um, and college educated are going Democrat. Now, obviously, there's a lot of uh, ifs, ands, and buts there. But but in general, that's the way we're seeing. And and the thing that Adam brought up is this this has uh, implications in policymaking, right? We saw this at the state level many years ago with Scott Walker, the governor of of Wisconsin, uh, who was just ousted in this in this latest election, but who did not have a degree, who did not right, and and talked about college as you know getting jobs and 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 really changed a lot of things around higher education policy in uh, in in Wisconsin, got rid of tenure, uh, changed a lot of the. Uh, you know the program uh, management at uh, at colleges and universities at the public colleges and universities in terms in, of the in, programs just to be clear right in terms yep. of the programs that they could that offer they could offer and things like that again to make it much more around job uh, preparation so michael what 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 are the long term aspects of this in terms of republicans having much more uh, control of kind of this non-college going population. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because that's sort of the argument that Adam's making, advancing, is that uh, it's, it's the in some ways, that's the bigger predictor now of which party you will vote is your college education. And so if the Republicans that have historically been suspect, it's not just been Scott Walker, right? I mean, that suspicion of higher education has long been felt, I think, in, in, in Republicans. And, and the folks that are very upset about a lot of the free speech issues come from the conservative side as well. Uh, so I, I think it's an interesting question to see at the state level, maybe a little less so than the federal level. At the state level, will this uh, result in less funds for higher education than you might otherwise see? Will it result in more uh, micromanagement of the programs themselves? We also saw in North Carolina recently that Margaret Spellings, uh, the Secretary of Education under George W. Bush, uh, was brought in as chancellor of the UNC system. And then she was ousted uh, because, uh, well, excuse me, she stepped down. Right. But there was a lot of perception. But she that basically stepped down. Because she basically she stepped down because go. she couldn't handle a very political uh, right. board. Right. And so, uh, uh, 
that became even more Republican, um, right. or and and more to the right than than she was comfortable. Than she with was during, comfortable during with, and they thought the perception is that bringing her in that she was going to tow that party line, and she took a much more traditional chancellorship uh, view of of higher education. I think it's fair to say, uh, in, in, I think in keeping with her track record, to be honest. But right. it that raises an interesting question: How are you going to manage these public institutions that are fundamentally political in the same way that K twelve districts are political and so forth? I, I think it's an interesting interesting question to see uh, how this will continue to evolve across the country with that. Um, and Republican Democrats, and then of course we'll throw the independents in there, and uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, yeah, uh, who has uh, political ambitions, uh, uh, rumored and, for and president, res- rumored for president, but but gave a huge gift uh, to his alma mater, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University, which has caused some controversy um, because it's already an institution that has multi billions of dollars in its endowment, um, and already uh, in the focus of the gift was on financial aid uh, for low income students and the ability of them to probably go from, you know, 14% Pell eligible to maybe 20% uh, Pell eligible, which as Adam brought up is a, is a very small number at the end of the day. Um, thoughts on, on whether this will spur others to give more broadly uh, to higher ed. And, and I have a thought on, on why he did this and, or, and or what, what he should have done probably instead. Yeah, well, so I, 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 I'd love your thought. I, I'll, I'll say I'm a little bit more sympathetic often to lead institutions on this only because I do so much fundraising for my alma mater of Yale and I see all the restrictions on the endowment and so forth. And it's not so easy just to say we ought to do this because donors have put all sorts of restrictions on these gifts that uh, that, that make it hard to, f- uh, frankly, uh, manage in, in accordance with what you want. And so on one hand, I'm really excited that he gave not just to build another building like he did at Harvard Business School uh, and put it toward financial aid and making them need blind. I think that's a great model for the country. Uh, and I far prefer it personally to merit-based uh, scholarships. And so I think that's a good push from a storytelling perspective. I'm not sure it's going to have a huge uh, uh, impact, though, if I'm speaking frankly about uh, giving to higher education across the country. What's your take? I mean, my take was that I was kind of surprised given uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies has been a big advocate for access uh, in higher education, particularly among low-income students that, uh, for example, they've been a big supporter of the American Talent Initiative, which has, you know, 100-plus colleges uh, signed on, and and really surprised that since his philanthropists, uh, you know, who are working with him know about what the issues are in higher education, yeah, that there are these access institutions that that need the help, uh, that, that serve a lot more low-income students than a place like, for example, Johns Hopkins, that he wouldn't have given to efforts like that instead of his alma mater. At the same time, you know, I, I defended him on, on Twitter recently when I said, you know, he gave to his alma mater. You know, people give to something they know well, and and he, and he did that. And so I, I don't think, you know, I don't I don't think we should um, ding him for for that reason. Yeah, and I think it also presents a realistic picture of higher education, which is what makes it so unique, uh, which is that alums care about their schools. And that's a good thing, I think. And it's a good thing for the perpetuity of higher American higher education as well. Uh, but I do agree, uh, given his philanthropy's uh, deep knowledge and expertise uh, in the broader access and equity and completion uh, agenda, I was a little surprised by that. What I would love to have seen is Johns Hopkins say, we're going need blind and we're uh, doubling the size of the class. That, right. that, that, that would have been neat. But uh, I guess uh, for infrastructure reasons, that wasn't going to happen. Maybe he'll give more money to do that infrastructure. And then the final thing on, on Adam is I was glad he was able to talk about what the Atlantic is uh, is thinking about in terms of its higher education coverage, this idea 
idea of the American ideal of, of higher education. I, I think that we need more voices uh, covering higher education, especially as more regional and local papers kind of pull back on their on their higher education coverage. And, and we know this is critical uh, to the future of the country. And so it's always good to have more voices in this uh, in this realm. And narrative shapes uh, the future of higher education. And so it was important to have that voice and that perspective in the pages of the Atlantic. So for all of you joining us, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful to have Adam on the show. And uh, stay tuned for future episodes of Future You. And wherever you are listening, please uh, rate us, subscribe to us, tell your friends to listen, follow us on social media. And until next time, I'm Michael Horn signing off for Jeff Salingo. We'll see you soon. <laughs>